Good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to be here this morning, and I'm pleased to be able to share this message with you today. The Bible states that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the concluding statement that Paul gives to Timothy in the third chapter of 2 Timothy. And we will do well to keep this in mind as we progress through the scriptures regarding the life of David. Today, as we continue our study in 2 Samuel, we'll have to take a slight detour in the chronology. As most of you are aware, we didn't get to hear the message last week that Pastor Wayne had prepared due to circumstances which were beyond his control but were fully in God's merciful hands. And we're glad that he's doing well in his home resting. But Lord willing, he will be able to share that message with us in a couple of weeks. So we'll proceed this morning with 2 Samuel chapter 16 in which we encounter four key characters in three separate events. And we'll meet them in reverse alphabetical order from Z to A. Although each of these events is deserving of its own message, in which we could apply some key Christian doctrines, we'll look at them together as a whole and see how they impact the turbulent time in David's reign as king and how he responds. This is not merely a history lesson, but this too will allow us to see how living according to God's word blesses others and honors our Lord. To set the stage, we left off at the end of chapter 14, where Job, the commander of the army, had convinced David to allow his son Absalom to return to Jerusalem. You'll recall that after his Killing his brother Amnon, Absalom fled to Geshur across the Jordan River for safety, and he lived with his grandfather, Talmai. However, even though David relented and allowed Absalom to come back to the city, Absalom was still not permitted to come into the presence of his father, the king, and he lived in his own house for two more years. And finally, Absalom forces Joab, after he burns his fields, to plead with David. And David relents. And in the end, Absalom is restored to his rightful position as heir to the throne. And this brings us to chapter 15, which as I've already indicated, will bypass for now. But what happens here spans more than four years and is crucial in understanding what happens in chapter 16. So this is a spoiler alert. Without giving away too many of the details, Absalom conspires to dethrone his father, David the king. And he forces him to flee into the wilderness. Also important to know is that one of David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators. As we pick up the story in chapter 16, David and all those who are loyal to him are fleeing Jerusalem. 
heading toward the Jordan River. And they have just climbed up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. The text says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him and a couple of, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. This gift from Ziba may have reminded David of a time previous when he was in Carmel with his now wife Abigail, or in which his now wife Abigail had brought him a similar gift, offering it to him in order to appease his wrath against her then husband, Nabal, which might explain his next question. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. If you remember, we met Ziba back in chapter 9 when David says he wants to bless the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. We learn who Mephibosheth is because Saul's servant Ziba told him that there still remained one in his household. And we learned that Ziba was a Benjaminite and a servant of Saul with 15 sons and 20 of his own servants. He was apparently a wealthy man and very influential. And David ended up making him steward of all that belonged to Saul in order to provide for Mephibosheth. But essentially, Ziba had now become the servant of Mephibosheth. And Ziba apparently was not content in his current position and sought to be esteemed in the eyes of the king. So he lies to him. Although the text here doesn't indicate that Ziba is lying, and we only find that out later. David certainly had no reason to distrust Ziba at the time. He Ziba appears to be a faithful supporter, having brought donkeys and food. And in fact, what he tells David is quite plausible. The king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Ziba is implying that Mephibosheth actually thinks he will ascend to the throne. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So Ziba, successful in deceiving David, gets what he wanted, for now. In reality, it was likely that Mephibosheth was the one that came up with the idea to bless David with the much-needed supplies. But Ziba seized the opportunity and slandered his master in the process. In hindsight, David makes a rash judgment and doesn't even think to question Ziba's claim. But in fairness to David, though he might understand his rush to judgment, considering the stressful circumstances of the moment, 
This wasn't exactly a courtroom setting with attorneys and witnesses. On the other hand, David should have understood the idea which will eventually be presented in Proverbs 18 by his son Solomon, which says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Also, a wise ruler of Israel should have understood that justice demands that an accused be allowed a defense before pronouncing judgment. The law given by Moses stated that someone could only be condemned on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We would do well to learn a lesson from this episode, and we would do well to be wise, patient, and discerning, especially these days in a world where much of what we are told is true by one person is declared to be false or fake news by someone else. Who we believe is a serious matter. And it can have dire consequences. As professing believers in the Lord Jesus, we are told in Colossians, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And also in 1 Peter, Whosoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lying and deceit are evil. And believing lies often tends to evil. So all are to be avoided. Moving on a short distance beyond the Mount of Olives, David comes to a small village called Bahurim. Here we meet another Benjaminite of the family and the house of Saul. His name is Shimei, son of Gera. The text says, And as he came... He cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. My wife says she can't help but picture Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, hurling rocks and insults at Frodo and Sam, taunting them from the hillside. Nasty hobbitses, we hate them. That's probably what Shimei appeared to be like when he was up throwing rocks at David and his men from the hillside. So Shimei, in cursing David, is making accusations against him, which on the surface are absolutely false. However, David's response to this cursing may indicate a sense of guilt on his part. Could Shimei's accusations, in fact, be somewhat true? Let me just mention a couple of thoughts on this possibility. 
The death, the death of Saul was indeed at the hands of the Philistines. And David had done everything in his power to honor Saul and not harm him, much less kill him, even though he had several opportunities. However, it is true that David fled to Saul's enemies, which probably did contribute to Saul's defeat and ultimately his death. Also, in the account of Doeg, the Edomite, we, we recall that when David sought help from Abimelech and the priests of Nob, the result of that incident was the complete massacre of the town of Nob. And David even says to Abiathar the priest who had escaped the massacre and informed him of it, Oh, I knew that would happen when I saw Doeg there in the temple. This was all my fault. Bible scholars debate the historical location of Nob, but there is evidence that Nob is in fact Bahurim, Shimei's hometown. But regardless of whether it is or not, Nob was at least a Benjaminite community nearby whose inhabitants were possibly Shimei's relatives and were slaughtered because they dared to help the fugitive, David. So it is likely that Shimei really believes that David is responsible for the bloodshed of his people. Now let's contrast the responses to Shimei of David and his hot-headed nephew Abishai to Shimei's cursings. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with the good for this cursing today. This reminds us of a future event in the New Testament which will take place back on the Mount of Olives when the impetuous Apostle Peter drew his sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest. And Jesus reprimanded Peter saying, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, while Peter, like Abishai, is ready to spring into action with the sword and defend his Lord against a malicious attack, David responds more like Jesus, trusting God. In other words, while Abishai, like Peter, is ready to spring into action with the sword to defend his Lord against a malicious attack, David responds more like Jesus, trusting his God, who he knows is sovereign over all, to do with him as he will. 
So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Content to suffer the wrath and humiliation of Shimei's indignant curses, David humbly endured the assault, leaving any future judgment on Shimei to God. And by the way, we will meet Shimei again and learn of some surprising twists in the conclusion of his story. Meanwhile, back at the palace, Absalom has triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem with all his troops and supporters. And the text specifically mentions that the traitorous advisor Ahithophel is with him. Enter Hushai, the archite, who, like Ahithophel, is another friend and trusted advisor of King David. Most of Hushai's involvement during Absalom's rebellion against his father is recounted in chapters 15 and 17. So to avoid spoiling the rest of Hushai's story, which we'll hear in a couple weeks, I'll offer only what happens here in chapter 16 as a preview of coming attractions. Hushai comes to Absalom and declares to him, Long live the king! And Absalom questions questions Hushai's loyalty to his friend David and asks why he didn't flee with him. To which Hushai responds, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. So Hushai promises his allegiance to Absalom, just as Ahithophel had done. And Absalom now says to his advisors, We've taken the palace and the king has fled. Now what should we do? Verse 23 declares that now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So we're not surprised here when Absalom immediately follows the advice of Ahithophel. And we're not told whether Hushai or any other advisors had chimed in on the plan. And what was this plan? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was common for a new king to proclaim his legitimacy to the throne by taking the wives and or concubines of the deposed king. In fact, the prophet Nathan seems to indicate that David had done just that when he claimed the throne back in chapter 12, where Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. So Absalom claims the throne just as his father had. The text continues. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Absalom had now publicly declared that he is the king of Israel, becoming a stench to his father and strengthening his position by encouraging all of his followers. For Absalom, the die had been cast. He had done what he had done. There is no undo or delete button. This display of brazen rebellion takes us back again to Nathan's rebuke of King David for his sin with Bathsheba against Uriah. The prophet Nathan had proclaimed, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Remember, David had tried to hide his sin, but it was found out by Nathan. It is also very possible that David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel, found out as well. You see, Scripture seems to indicate that Ahithophel was, in fact, Bathsheba's grandfather. David had killed his granddaughter's husband and then took her to be his wife. This may have seriously jeopardized the loyalty of Ahithophel to King David. Ahithophel also likely had heard the prophecy of Nathan regarding the evil coming upon David from his own house. Might explain why he supported Absalom in his rebellion. And of his wives being taken in the sight of all the people of Israel. Did Ahithophel purpose to fulfill these prophecies? If he didn't, he at least was very instrumental in, the, in their fulfillment. Now here again we pause in the story of Ahithophel, waiting patiently for the next chapter, where we will learn of the possible consequences of treachery and betrayal. In conclusion, we began this morning with the final verses of 2 Timothy 3. And after hearing the events regarding Ziba, Shimei, and Ahithophel in this cautionary tale, consider the remainder of this chapter in 2 Timothy and how it might encourage us to live our lives in a way that will honor Christ. But understand this, 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.